Hello and welcome. My name is Tenzin Tarpa, and I'll be reading from my short text, Goodness, which is part of my Skillful Living series. You can download a print copy of this text and many others from my website at TenzinTarpa.com. Just a reminder that although my work is free, as a Buddhist monk, I do rely on donations to sustain myself and my work. So, if you find my writing of value, consider making a donation at my website. Goodness by Tenzin Tarpa Quote, To embrace the Buddha's path is to fall in love with goodness. End quote. All Buddhist teachings and practices are first and foremost based on a foundation of goodness, formally referred to as virtuous ethics. Buddhist ethics are unique in the sense that they're not moral laws of a creator god or prophet, but instead are a set of practical values for living a productive and harmonious life, that which is conducive to positive personal development and the positive development of society. Sometimes referred to as logical goodness, Buddhist ethics are unique in their focus not merely on our actions, but more importantly, on the intentions behind our actions. Goodness, also termed virtue, benevolence, and wholesomeness, pertains to our qualities of goodwill, compassion, generosity, fairness, kindness, humility, gentleness, and our capacity for love, joy, care, honesty, and community. I like using the term goodness because it's easy, direct, and universal. However, Buddhism generally prefers to use less subjective terms, favoring the terms virtuous and non-virtuous, wholesome and unwholesome, productive and unproductive, or skillful and unskillful. Why is goodness important? This question takes me back to basic philosophy class and the question, why is it good to be good? Well, without rekindling that tedious debate, I'd like to go straight to the root. Let's not kid ourselves. We all know what goodness is and why we value it. We've all experienced the emotional and physical sensations when we've performed or been the recipient of an act of goodness. The value and upholding of goodness is portrayed in all of our media, while the reasons we favor goodness can be easily grasped by imagining how we want others to treat our loved ones, or by reflecting on the effort we spend training our children to be good. And if I haven't convinced you enough yet, let's look at the clearest argument. Do any of us desire its opposite? Malevolence, cruelty, depravity, meanness, etc. Other than people who suffer from deeply convoluted mental states, goodness is a quality sought after, cultivated, and appreciated by all, regardless of our social and cultural differences. The Benefits of Goodness a foundation in goodness allows for a more stable and less problematic life while providing a clear direction for spiritual development. There's always been a debate whether it's more beneficial to be an optimist or a pessimist, and philosophically, both arguments have merit. The optimist asserts the power of hope and its ability to lift us out of our suffering, while the pessimist asserts that you can't suffer from expectations you don't have. 
However, today the research is in. An overwhelming body of evidence contends that when we are positive, we are healthier, happier, smarter, and feel more satisfied and fulfilled. Buddhists believe this is due to our aligning ourselves with our true nature, which is naturally pure, good, compassionate, and wise, asserting that it's our mental afflictions and limitations that prevent us from realizing and experiencing this truth. Therefore, the Buddhist path is aimed at transcending our limitations so we can directly experience our true benevolent nature. But you don't have to take my word for it. The benefits of goodness can be experienced firsthand through embracing and practicing goodness. When, for when you hold yourself up to a higher standard of living, life changes profoundly for the better. One thing that meditation teachers learn is that positive, open, and friendly students develop faster. In my own travels, I've stayed in over 60 monasteries and spiritual communities of all the various traditions. I found that although the tougher communities believe they are superior and they practice their practice more profound, it was actually the softer communities who were more impressive. That is, those who maintain moderation and balance in their practice and living, who embrace kindness, gentleness, comfort, and a nurturing style of development. It was these communities that clearly produced healthier, happier, and more mentally and emotionally stable practitioners, practitioners who resembled and exemplified awakening. Quote, there is nothing wrong with having pleasures and enjoyments. What is wrong is the confused way we grasp onto these pleasures, turning them from a source of happiness into a source of pain and dissatisfaction. End quote. By Lama Yeshi. A few words about false positivity. Before going further, I'd like to take a moment and discuss the topic of false positivity. Some may contend that the active cultivation of goodness is merely a form of fake positivity, a contrived happiness similar to the condition of spiritual bypass, the use of spiritual practice to reinvent oneself as a spiritual being in order to avoid dealing with painful feelings, unresolved wounds, and developmental needs. However, Buddhism focuses on eliminating delusion and not merely trading one set of delusion for another. Buddhist ethics are based on logic, reason, and wisdom, which grounds us in a more objective reality. In Buddhism, there's no place for unanalyzed beliefs or views. We embrace reality fully and unconditionally, accepting both its joys and its suffering. Conceptual understanding versus direct experience. Goodness can be understood and experienced both conceptually and experientially. We understand it conceptually through reason and logic, accepting goodness as a beneficial ideal to live by and an aspiration to be cultivated. But we can also understand goodness experientially through its direct experience, feeling it as the warm felt at the chest when we feel cared for by others, or the uplifting feel we get knowing we've made a positive difference in another person's life. Goodness can also be observed through facial, behavioral, and emotional cues, and by witnessing its effect on others and society. 
goodness is an intention. Some assert that the Buddha's greatest contribution was in clarifying that the merits of our actions lie in the intentions behind them and not in the actions themselves, meaning goodness resides in our perspective and our intentions. Intentions can be understood as the meaning behind the things we do, the purpose, reason, or plan that initiates external or internal behavior. Intentions are where the merits of our actions are found and what determines behavior as wholesome or unwholesome. Let's use an example of stealing. Stealing in itself, although generally deemed unwholesome, is actually ethically ambiguous. For there are many reasons to steal. Stealing can be driven by greed or envy, but also by compassion. For example, if no other means are possible, to steal food or medicine for a sick child. This shows that it is our intentions that determine the true value of our actions. Additionally, our intentions also dictate the quality of our actions and behavior. For example, doing quality work or sloppy work. Goodness as a direction. The Buddha asserted that all of our intentions, choices, desires, behaviors, and aims arise from three underlying propensities, which can be understood as three foundational directions, that of virtuous, non-virtuous, and neutral. The direction of virtue is the path towards awakening and includes clarity, positivity, productivity, happiness, and freedom. The direction of non-virtue is the path towards ignorance and includes negativity, unproductivity, suffering, and bondage. And the direction of neutrality, which is to abide in inaction, indifference, and or equanimity. These directions, although unseen to most of us, are deeply significant in understanding our minds, behaviors, and lives. Whether we are aware of it or not, there is always a direction or directions that precede our intentions, choices, and actions. Meaning, we can follow various directions pertaining to different aspects of our lives. For example, we may follow a wholesome direction ideologically, while at the same time follow an unwholesome direction in our business affairs. Buddhism aligns itself with virtuous direction. But there are some Buddhist schools of thought who favor a more neutral direction. However, no rational ideology favors a non-virtuous direction. Karma. Within the last two topics shared, that of intention and direction, lies the foundation for the Buddhist concept of karma. Karma is a form of internal cause and effect that governs all sentient life. The concept of karma asserts that all intentional actions or deliberate actions, whether physical, verbal, or mental, have consequences and produce effects. It's important to understand that karma, being a form of intentional action, can only be produced by a mind. Other phenomena, including planetary events, universal properties, weather, etc., although governed by the law of cause and effect, can never generate or possess karma. 
Karma or intentional action, either positive, negative, or neutral, subsequently produces karmic imprints upon the mind. These imprints then lead to future karmic results that correspond with the nature of those actions. With positive or virtuous actions leading to positive results, and negative or non-virtuous actions leading to negative results. The way karma works is that karma is created and imprinted when our feelings become involved, as a kind of mental and emotional residue left behind from feelings related to our intentions, thoughts, actions, reactions, and experiences. These karmic imprints influence and distort our perceptions, choices, and actions, thereby coloring and shaping our current as well as our future views and perceptions further. The common understanding of karma is seen as a kind of universal judgment or retribution, which it is not. Karma, being a form of cause and effect, lacks any moral judgment or discernment between good or bad, fair or unfair, or reward or punishment. Karma is also not static or a fixed property, but instead exists interdependently in a state of constant change, continuously being influenced by our own current uh, interactions with new experiences, views, changing feelings, and interactions with others' distinct karma. Therefore, karma is not a form of predetermination, destiny, or fate, nor is it related to coincidence or luck. Instead, karma should be understood as a probable po potentiality, the probable potential of future results. Properly understood, karmic, karma is dynamic, progressive, and creative. A creativity proclaiming that we are the architects of our future and not the victims of our past. That starting today through engaging in wiser choices and more skillful actions, we can radically improve the quality of our lives. Therefore, when contemplating and analyzing our lives, we should not ponder what past karma may unfold, but instead we should focus on what future results are currently intent our intentional actions are creating. When we realize this fully, all concerns as to assigning blame, imagining retribution, or being consumed by regret or guilt fall away. Goodness is an antidote. One fascinating aspect of the mind that's fully utilized in Buddhism is that although our senses can work together simultaneously, the mind lacks this ability. The mind, although being able to switch back and forth rapidly, can only engage with one thought or concept at a time. Buddhism uses this to its advantage. For while immersing the mind in goodness, it cannot entertain negativity. This trick allows us to enforce and habituate positive thought, attitudes, and habits, while at the same time reducing their negative counterparts. Quote, Intentionally focusing on positive mental qualities, emotions, intentions, and thought can actually wire our mind to be more positive and to mimic or possess healthier positive states of mind. 
Whereas complaining and focusing on negative feelings, intentions, etc., wires our mind to be more negative, angry, depressed, pessimistic, and physically and mentally more unhealthy. Steve Parton from The Science of Happiness. Unquote. Goodness is an attitude. Another deeply significant aspect of goodness is our attitudes towards life. Our attitudes can be understood as mental orientations or set predispositions through which we perceive, interpret, evaluate, and engage our lives. Attitudes operate as lenses through which we understand and interact with our reality, existing as both evaluations and strategies towards life. Attitudes and micro-attitudes emerge from the three foundational directions of virtuous, non-virtuous, and neutral, and from both habituated patterns as well as free choice. Our attitudes are dynamic, complex, and in a state of constant change, being influenced by our feelings, emotions, thoughts, and experiences. Attitudes can function as both a cause that influence us, as well as a result arising from our experiences. Attitudes can be obvious or subconscious, weaving the way through our mental landscape, representing the flavor, style, or spirit in which we live our lives. Attitudes can also be actively created and cultivated. You can learn and adopt attitudes that you believe are beneficial and productive, as well as abandon attitudes you deem harmful or unproductive. This, of course, is the very idea behind psychology, ideologies, religions, workplace, workplace training, and social conditioning. To instill effective attitudes and desired psychology in its members, Attitudes that are conducive to the group's aim. Often, working with our attitudes is the simplest and most productive means of transforming our lives, having both an immediate and a lasting impact. One example of this is the Buddhist concept of bodhicitta, the mind of awakening, in which an attitude of compassionate altruism is cultivated into a constant state of mind in order to lessen our predisposition for self-cherishing. Fuel, that which powers our attitudes. The Buddha liked to use the analogy of fire and fuel throughout his teaching. Fire was used to symbolize craving, hatred, passion, and obsession, while fuel symbolized that which feeds those qualities. This fuel, which lies behind our attitudes, intentions, and behaviors, is very subtle and, re and related to the three foundational directions of virtuous, non-virtuous, and neutral. Positive or uncontaminated fuel arises from joy, virtue, wonder, goodwill, love, altruism, appreciation, creativity, curiosity, exploration, fairness, friendship, fun, enthusiasm, a, a sense of responsibility, and our desire for justice, harmony, and well-being. Negative or contaminated fuel arises from competition, greed, 
envy, aggression, reactivity, resentment, malevolence, pride, narcissism, selfishness, anger, hatred, lust, revenge, vanity, a thirst for power, control, or fame. Our goals and objectives can be gained through either fuel. However, the quality of the fuel we utilize directly determines the quality of the result we attain. For example, let's say you want to be a successful business person. You can use contaminated fuel, competition, pride, greed, etc. to achieve your aim, but the result will be flavored by that fuel, a result in which, although successful, you constantly reflect on your negative actions, having people despise you, or worrying about your enemies wanting revenge. Conversely, you can use uncontaminated fuel, joy, altruism, wonder, creativity, etc., to achieve the same aim. In this case, the flavor of your success would be much different, a result in which you are successful and truly content, where you are liked and appreciated by your colleagues, feeling good about yourself as a positive influence uh, in your community, and sleep well with a clear conscience. The most important difference in the quality of these two fuels is in their origin. Uncontaminated fuel arises from calmness, clarity, contentment, spaciousness, and trust, which leads to joy and awakening, while contaminated fuel arises from our busyness, speediness, intensity, fear, and our exaggerated feelings of immediacy, which leads to obsession and neuroses. Contaminated fuel can be easily detected within our desires, and especially in our food desires. For myself, I began to notice that there were an obsessive drive pushing my appetite and craving, a force that intensified as my mind became speedier and busier. I learned by breathing into this energy and calming myself that this neurotic drive could be reduced and my craving and desire lessened. Quote, Indeed, the sage who's fully quenched rests at ease in every way. No sense desire adheres to him whose fires have been cooled, deprived of fuel. All attachments have been severed. The heart's been led away from pain. Tranquil, he rests with utmost ease. The mind has found its way to peace. End quote. The Buddha. The delicate balance between attitude, fuel, and confidence. The quality of our attitudes and fuels are interdependent, meaning our fuels influence our attitudes and our attitudes influence our fuel. This is important within our self-confidence, the belief in yourself and your ability. Genuine self-confidence is humble, spacious, and calm, whereas false self-confidence is rooted in egotism, narcissism, competition, and envy. Within my own practice, I began to notice that negative emotions and moods often arose within moments of low self-confidence. I quickly learned that I could improve my over, overall mood 
by monitoring and working with my level of self-confidence, which in turn increased my level of positive emotions, productivity, and willpower. Goodness in the mind. We've talked about goodness as a concept, an emotion, an experience, a direction, and an antidote. Now let's look into the internal mechanisms of goodness and how it relates to the mind. Within Buddhism, the most important aspect of mind is our view or perspective towards life. Our mental orientation, which includes beliefs, values, hopes, fears, and goals. Our view is what establishes our model of reality through which we interpret and understand our lives. The concept of view is also the simplest way to understand Buddhism, through the concepts of right view and wrong view. Within Buddhism, right view is defined as the correct understanding and perception of the true nature of oneself and reality. For someone following the Buddhist path, this means having an accurate understanding of the Buddha's teachings and his model of reality. Within Buddhism, right view is asserted as the cause and condition for the attainment of liberation or awakening, whereas wrong views, which are commonly asserted as the two extreme views of nihilism, that nothing exists, and absolutism, externalism, and or self-existence, which is said to be the causes and conditions for mundane existence. In other words, right view represents clarity, understanding, and awakening, and wrong views, which represent delusion, ignorance, and suffering. The premise here is simple. Through a better understanding of ourselves, our environment, and our reality, we gain the ability to make wiser choices. It's through cultivating and maintaining the proper perspective that we attain lasting happiness, often regardless of external conditions. Goodness, Ethics, and the Buddhist Model of Reality To understand goodness within its Buddhist context, we first have to understand the Buddhist model of reality. Buddhism doesn't share the common religious view of a universe locked in battle between good and evil. Instead, it asserts a natural universe, operating within natural laws, where the ideas of evil, sin, and the supernatural are rejected as the causes for our problems. Rather, Buddhism asserts that it is our ignorance, mental afflictions, and human limitations that are the true causes of our suffering. Buddhism also refutes the notion of a conscious universe, insisting that consciousness can only exist within a mind. This means that the principles of meaning, purpose, value, and judgment, including goodness, can only be known and experienced by a mind. For Buddhists who are non-theistic, not holding a belief in a creator God, the universe simply lacks the ability to possess or impute goodness or its opposite. Instead, it's ourselves and our culture that decide our criteria for goodness. Below are some of the tenets that characterize Buddhist ethics. Nonviolence. At the heart of the Buddhist teachings is a deep reverence for life. Buddhists believe that all sentient life, even the smallest of insects, has the basic right to happiness and not to suffer. 
equality. Historically, Buddhism is believed to be the first truly egalitarian movement, with the Buddha rejecting India's caste system, insisting all people, regardless of ethnicity, caste, gender, ideology, or religious background, possess the same potential for spiritual development. Altruism Within Buddhism, altruism is understood as the unselfish concern for the welfare of others. Buddhists understand that our world and all the things in it exist interdependently. And for humans who are social beings, concern for others' well-being is a sensible and logical strategy. For it's through practicing altruism that we contribute to a more harmonious community, a community which in turn contributes to our well-being. Quote, all the suffering there is in this world arises from wishing ourself to be happy. All the happiness there is in this world arises from wishing others to be happy. End quote. By Shantideva. Generosity. Generosity and charity as a practice is the most prescribed practice within all forms of Buddhism. The practice includes the giving of resources, protection, care, love, one's time, and oneself. But revered most is the sharing of the Buddha's teachings. I often think that the cultivation of meritorious qualities like generosity are misunderstood, with many seeing it as similar to making deposits of goodness into a bank account to pay for future rewards. However, according to the 18th century Indian Buddhist master Shantideva, the cultivation of qualities like generosity are not so much about earning goodness, but instead about reducing our limitations. Quote, to be generous doesn't merely mean to give without bias or partiality. It means to be profoundly free from attachment to anything whatsoever. End quote. By Padmasambhava. Wisdom and Compassion. Wisdom and compassion constitute the two core aspects of the Buddhist path. These two complementary forces, when used in union, create a unique potential for positive results. They are often likened to the two wings of a bird, in which an equal balance between both wings is necessary for flight. I like to use the term understanding in place of the traditional term wisdom. For myself, the term wisdom elicits an image of privileged information, whereas what I have gained in my own Buddhist training and practice is an understanding pertaining to real daily life. In Tibetan Buddhism, the term for wisdom is sherab, she meaning understanding or knowing, and rab being an intensifying particle, meaning supreme, highest, or very. Therefore, wisdom is defined as supreme understanding. Understanding. Before defining understanding, let's first look at its source, which is knowledge. Commonly, knowledge is defined as the accumulation of information obtained through study, observation, and or experience. While understanding can be seen as a distilling of that knowledge, an insight that clearly discerns that which is true, right, just, and fair. 
Understanding is that which allows us to apply precision to our judgment, decisions, and actions. In the Buddhist context, understanding often refers to a specific kind of understanding, the clear understanding of the Buddhist teachings and the true nature of oneself and reality. When pertaining to goodness, understanding is that which clearly discerns virtue from non-virtue, knowing what is to be accepted and what is to be abandoned. Compassion. Compassion within Buddhism is not seen as a passive or static emotion, but instead as an active experiential quality, the act of caring. Within Buddhism, the definition of Compassion is twofold, to identify with the suffering of others and to wish that they may be free of suffering. The Buddhist idea of compassion is not mere pity in which one feels sorry for others from a distance or place of superiority, nor is it merely empathy in which one sympathizes with the suffering of another. Instead, it is to fully understand the equality of sentient life and the universality of our shared experience. It is seeing other situations as equal to our own, their suffering as equal to our, our own, their hopes and fears as equal to our own, and their wish for happiness and aversion to suffering as equal to our own. When this is realized profoundly and wholeheartedly, one cannot stop from helping others. According to the Dalai Lama, quote, Cultivating a more compassionate attitude has the effect of opening the mind. Having a calm and compassionate mind enables us to use our natural intelligence more effectively. Without a more holistic perspective, it's difficult to appreciate the reality of any given situation. And without that, any action we take is likely to be unrealistic and therefore unsuccessful. Idiot Compassion Buddhism also asserts the notion of idiot compassion, understood as compassion lacking wisdom, which often brings about unwanted results. A compassion that benefits others at the detriment of our own well-being. In other words, merely possessing good intentions is not enough. We must utilize both understanding and compassion in union to effectively benefit ourselves and others. For understanding without compassion is hollow, and compassion without understanding is foolish. A classic example of idiot compassion is a lighthouse keeper who was allotted a limited amount of oil each month to keep the lighthouse lit. But through the month, local villagers come to beg him for oil, one to keep her children warm during a storm, another needing oil for his own lamp, and one needing oil for his wagon. Of course, these were all good reasons, and so, out of compassion, the lighthouse keeper gives a small amount of oil to each. However, towards the end of the month, he runs out of oil himself, and his lighthouse goes dark, causing a ship to run ground and many aboard to lose their lives. The moral of the story is, although his intentions were compassionate, his lack of wisdom and understanding caused many more to suffer to a much greater degree. Love and loving kindness. 
According to Buddhism, love is defined as wishing others to be happy, wanting to make others happy, and taking delight in their happiness. Additionally, love is understood as pure goodwill, the desire to bring welfare to the, and good to, the, to fellow beings. According to Buddhism, in its purest form, love is unconditional and free of all attachment. The unconditional love of superior beings is a pure love that is peaceful because of being free of grasping, non-feverish because being free of passions, without conflict because it is free of the violence of passion, non-dual because it is involved neither with the external nor with the internal, and accords with reality because it is equanimous. This pure love has as its focus the wish to liberate all beings from suffering by teaching them the Dharma. Therefore, it is a love that is a true refuge, a love that causes living beings to awaken from their sleep, a love that is never exhausted because it acknowledges emptiness and selflessness, end quote, attributed to Manjushri. Quote, let no one deceive another, nor despise anyone anywhere. Let none, by anger or hatred, wish harm upon another. As a mother protects her only child with boundless loving kindness, cherish all beings and love without limit. End quote. The Buddha. Friendship and Affection For the Buddha, the highest form of a relationship is the affectionate and platonic friendship between teacher and student, referred to as spiritual friends. This term can also include the friendship between close practitioners. The Buddha claimed he himself exemplified the spiritual friend, asserting that success on the path relies strongly on the company and example set by our spiritual friends. Quote, Ananda. Spiritual friendship is not half of the holy life, but the whole of the holy life, end quote, the Buddha. Joy. Joy, as well as goodness, are asserted, asserted by Buddhism as aspects of our true nature, described as a shining contentment or spiritual radiance born from deep feelings of well-being and goodness. Joy is commonly defined as great pleasure, great happiness, great delight. However, the Buddhist understanding of joy is elevated far beyond the common everyday emotion, often referred to as sympathetic or innate joy, which arises from both our own well-being as well as from rejoicing in others' well-being. Quote, as one of the seven factors of enlightenment, Joy is not only a fruit of awakening, but also a prerequisite. End quote. James Barras. The Ten Virtuous Actions. Within Buddhism, goodness and ethics are exemplified within the Ten Virtuous Actions. Ten wholesome behaviors that are conducive to the attainment of liberation. For the sake of clarity, these ten wholesome actions are contrasted with their unwholesome counterparts, the ten non-virtuous actions, ten unwholesome behaviors that are obstacles to spiritual growth. These ten wholesome and ten unwholesome actions clearly outline what is to be cultivated and what is to be abandoned. 
Commonly, they're grouped by actions of body, actions of speech, and actions of mind. The ten virtuous actions are, one, respecting, protecting, and nurturing life. Two, respecting others' property. Three, avoiding sexual misconduct, that of sexual harm, either mental, emotional, or physical. Four, speaking the truth, being honest. Five, speaking politely and kindly. Six, speaking in ways that create harmony. Seven, speaking meaningfully and moderately. Eight, cultivating contentment and non-attachment. Nine, cultivating goodwill. And ten, cultivating right view. The ten non-virtuous actions are, one, destroying life, two, stealing, three, sexual misconduct, four, false speech, five, harsh or rude speech, six, slanderous speech, seven, idle chatter, eight, covetedness or envy, nine, ill will, and ten, wrong view. How to cultivate goodness. Quote, goodness and positive attitudes do not arise in an unwilling mind. End quote. Transcendence, not suppression. When working with negative emotions, desires, and behaviors, they can become particularly problematic when attempting to suppress them. Often, the advice given is to express them in healthy ways. However, this rarely works. In most cases, any way we express them still enforces the habit. Also, the advice focuses merely on the results of the problem instead of dealing with the actual causes. Conversely, Buddhism aims at transcending our negative aspects by working directly at their roots. It's by shining light on our less wholesome aspects and looking at them objectively that we gain understanding and clarity into their nature, allowing us to eventually transcend them. Cultivating Goodness and Positive Attitudes The initial focus of Buddhist practice is focused on the cultivation of goodness and positive qualities, which serves as a stable foundation for spiritual growth. Many believe that spiritual development must be earned through sacrifice, hardship, and suffering. However, Buddhism is different. The Buddha taught a middle way between suffering and indulgence, which he asserted to be the best foundation for practice, a path of moderation, balance, and contentment. The Buddha found within his own experience that practices that utilize self-punishment didn't liberate him, but instead made him suffer more. Instead, the Buddhist middle way path actually utilizes the power of goodness, joy, compassion, and contentment to create even greater levels of fulfillment. The first step in cultivating goodness and positive attitudes is to clearly understand what they are and what they are not, or in the Buddha's words, to understand what is to be accepted and what is to be abandoned. This is accomplished through study, contemplation, and meditation.
Secondly, I find the daily recitation of aspirations and affirmations, or prayers, very effective. And lastly, to practice goodness by maintaining the ten virtuous actions, engaging in altruistic acts of kindness, and immersing ourselves in positive experiences, situations, media, groups, and people. Working with Fuel I believe the most advantageous way of cultivating goodness and positive attitudes is by focusing our attention on the fuel which feeds our attitudes. In other words, being aware of and decreasing the influence of our contaminated fuel, while increasing the influence of our uncontaminated fuel. How to decrease negative or contaminated fuel? The first step in reducing contaminated fuel is to understand it. This is done through contemplation and introspection, leading to a direct felt experience of its destructive and unskillful nature. Negative fuel is decreased by robbing it of its own fuel, which is our busyness, our speediness, intensity, and our exaggerated feelings of immediacy. It's through slowing down and becoming calmer that craving, attachment, aversion, and obsession are naturally reduced. How to increase positive or uncontaminated fuel? Again, the first step in increasing uncontaminated fuel is to understand it. This is done through contemplation and introspection, leading to the direct felt experience of its constructive and skillful nature. Positive fuel is increased by engaging in practices designed to cultivate goodness, positive attitudes, and contentment shared in this text, such as loving-kindness meditation, the four gifts, the recitation of aspirations and affirmations, and following the tenets that uphold goodness, along with the practices of meditation and mindfulness. Loving-kindness meditation Loving-kindness meditation is a wonderful and easy way to increase feelings of goodness. It can be practiced anytime you want to increase your sense of benevolence and compassion. Begin by sitting comfortably while focusing on your breath. As you start to feel calm, begin generating feelings of goodness, positivity, and love at your heart. If needed, you can recall a past act of kindness and the goodness you felt from the experience. While cultivating these feelings, see if you can extend the feeling throughout your body, thereby creating a felt union of mind and body. Next, as you increase these feelings further, Envision yourself as a large, precious jewel. Imagine the sun is shining down upon you, filling you with light, warmth, and goodness. Continue to increase these feelings while envisioning your own light, warmth, and goodness, filling the room. Now, visualize millions of light rays radiating out from you in all directions. 
Imagine them reaching out and touching the hearts of all sentient life. Feel the light rays carrying your light, warmth, and goodness out to them, infusing them with joy and well-being. Notice how this act of generosity doesn't lessen your own goodness, but instead enhances it. For goodness doesn't diminish when shared, but instead increases. Now, imagine that your goodness has completely filled their hearts. At this point, you change the direction of those light rays and feel the light, warmth, and goodness from all of them coming back to you. Now, simply bask in the nurturing care and love of their light. Breathe and relax into the experience. Let their light envelop you. Let it nourish and revitalize you. At the end of the meditation, recite our altruistic aspiration, dedicating it to all sentient life. May all be healthy, may all be prosperous, may all be well. May all be present, free of future worry and past regret. May all abide in constant appreciation, which is a great source of joy and contentment. May all realize their own true nature, which is awakening. The practice of connecting. The practice of connecting is a practice of mindfulness and stillness that can be utilized anytime you feel the need to calm and center yourself. This practice begins by bringing your full awareness to your breath and the present moment. Next, silently reflect upon your goodness, unlimited potential, and true value. Feel and connect with yourself, your environment, and your reality. Breathe and abide in the present moment while fully appreciating the wonder and miracle of your existence. The duration of this practice can be as short as three deep breaths. This, breath, this practice can also be used to connect with others when first meeting or when wanting to initialize a moment of presence. It is especially beneficial in bringing presence and cohesion to a group. The practice can be initiated by saying aloud, let's take a moment to connect. Then take a few minutes in silence to connect with each other and the present moment. Reflect on your shared humanity, your shared desire for happiness and aversion to suffering. The duration can be the same, about three breaths. Q&A, questions, answers, and requested advice by practitioners. Question, isn't goodness subjective to each person? Answer, 
Yes, but there are core ethical principles that we all share, like not killing, stealing, or using violence, etc. Generally, all of the various religions, ideologies, and laws of countries share a similar basic set of ethical values. Question. How can logic dictate morality? Answer. We see it every day in the laws of countries, rules in workplaces and schools, and our shared social values. Logic allows us to rationally discern and denounce unethical or unharmonious behaviors that is ob obviously harmful and unproductive to others and our communities. While at the same time, logic helps us to discern and advocate principles that are clearly beneficial to all. Question. Why are our intentions more important than our actions? Answer. Because all deliberate actions are the subsequent fulfillment of our intentions. In other words, all actions by body, speech, and mind begin with an intention. Intentions are where the merits of our actions are found, that which determines behavior as wholesome or unwholesome. Question. Does Buddhism reject the concepts of good and bad? Answer. Not at all. These values are clearly present in our lives. However, people's view of what constitute good and bad are subjective and can vary widely. Because of this, Buddhism prefers to use less subjective terms, favoring expressions like virtuous and non-virtuous, wholesome and unwholesome, healthy and unhealthy, productive and non-productive, or skillful and unskillful. It's important to remember that Buddhism does not share the same ontological model of most religions, of a universe locked in battle between good and evil. Instead, Buddhism asserts a natural universe operating through natural universal principles, where principles like good and bad are understood as conceptual values existing only in the mind and not universal principles. However, with that said, although being conceptual, good and bad are real and crucial aspects of our lives. Question. If evil doesn't exist, how do you explain the terrible things that happen in the world? Answer. Buddhism attributes the suffering in our world not to evil, sin, or the supernatural, but instead to ignorance, mental affliction, and mental illness. Question. If goodness is our true nature, how do you explain those who seem to revel in malevolence? Answer. Buddhism sees the malevolent and the criminal as suffering from deeply convoluted mental states, mental afflictions, and mental illness caused by past trauma. However, Buddhism also believes most individuals and situations can be improved to some degree. Question. I'm glad you addressed the subject of false positivity. This seems like a major problem in spiritual communities, but maybe even more in the secular world. Answer. Yes, in both the spiritual and secular worlds, false positivity is extensive. 
It often comes from our media who continually push happiness upon us, as if trying to convince us and themselves that we are indeed happy, as if saying it enough times would make it true. But positivity gained in superficial ways is short-lived. It, for merely pretending to be happy, cannot be maintained for very long, and we inevitably snap over the smallest thing. Fake positivity often manifests as an over-niceness, a contrived projection of happiness that is actually a numbness or detachment to life. It can also manifest as superficiality, where we distract ourselves from our pain by immersing ourselves in trivial, trivial interests, busyness, and chatter. In the spiritual world, this is seen in practitioners who are of overly focused on the superficial aspects of their spiritual path. An affliction term, spiritual materialism, in which the practitioner is consumed with who they know, what they have done, what attainments they believe they have realized, all of which are generally focused on impressing others. Question. Can you talk more about how attitudes are strategies towards life? Answer. Attitudes arise from our evaluations of life. From those evaluations, we construct strategies, attitudes, of how to meet, engage, and cope with life. A predetermined strategy, spirit, or style that serves as an interface with our environment. These strategies or attitudes are extensive and can be wholesome, unwholesome, or neutral. In many cases, we may have a unique attitude for each situation and person we encounter, be it romantic, work, leisure, friends, family, etc. You mentioned the term micro-attitudes, but didn't explain it further. Could you share a little about that? Our, atti our attitudes are wide-ranging and layered with minor attitudes, both known and unknown, supporting and influencing our more prominent attitudes. These minor or lesser attitudes I refer to as micro-attitudes. Important notes. If difficulties in your practice persist, it's always a good idea to seek out additional one-on-one -on -one advice from a qualified teacher. Meditation, mindfulness, and Buddhism were not intended as medical therapy. For those who suffer from mental, social, or emotional disorders, it's always best to work with a therapist or specialized teacher in the field. Currently, there are a growing number of therapists and specialized teachers that can instruct patients in meditation, mindfulness, and Buddhist practice. And lastly, if for any reason you feel vulnerable, unstable, or just a bit down, reach out to others, be it family, friends, or professional caregivers. There are so many wonderful people in this world who wish to help others. And that brings us to the end of this text. Thank you for listening. I hope this text was both beneficial and inspiring. Please be sure to check out my download library for free Buddhist study material at TenzinTarpa.com. And just a reminder, if you find my work of value, consider making a donation at my website. 
importante.